When I was about 18, I think I was, my boss at the time talked me into going skydiving with him for the first time. I had zero interest in it prior to that point, but I really liked this guy, and his passion was contagious to me, and somehow this goober talked me into going up and jumping out of an airplane. And I still remember the moment we were about to, we were on the little runway there out in the middle of nowhere in South Africa, and the propellers of this plane were buzzing loudly, and we were standing in line just behind it with our chutes on, and, and I remember the dive instructor looking at us and yelling above the noise of the propellers, if you get on this plane, you will jump out. We're not bringing you back in the plane. There was a moment of decision. I thought, I've still got an out. I can still bail on Fred Cunningham, and I can let him go and do his thing, and I can run, you know, run for the hills. My heart was pounding. I thought, what am I doing on a perfectly beautiful, sunny afternoon? And for some reason, I overcame that moment of fear, and I stepped into that plane, and up we went, and up we went, and up to 6,000 feet. And I remember leaning out, looking and seeing what was the runway we were on that was about that long now. And uh, we reached the jump site, and the instructor began yelling just as we'd rehearsed on the ground, and one by one we had to run out that door. This was before the days of jumping with a pro. Tandem jumping wasn't a thing. And so it was this, the old Army static line deal, where you run and you jump out of the plane... And you fall for a while, and then that line catches and pulls your chute open. And uh, I remember thinking it was going to be like flying like a bird, like really cool for a while. <laughs> but the only thing I remember is when I left the plane and the wind currents hit me, I flipped over and I was spinning, and I saw the plane above me disappear like this. <laughs> and it was a terrifying moment until the chute opened. And then it was the most wonderful experience ever. For however many minutes it was, you could steer it and you could glide and you had this, it was just completely silent and you could see everything and, and that was wonderful until the ground came rushing up towards you and shoved your knees into your chin and then the fun ended. But I, I think back on that and I wonder sometimes in that moment of decision, I could have backed out. But if I had, I would never have known what it was like to fall out of an airplane. I would never have known that feeling, that experience that is really life-changing. It's phenomenal. I know some of you in the military have done hundreds of jumps, so you're looking at me right now like, dude, that was like five times a day for me. It was nothing. But for me, it was an incredible experience that I would have missed out on if I had given in to my fears. I wonder sometimes how many things we've missed out on in our spiritual lives because we were too scared or too stubborn or too complacent to step out and do what God was telling us to do. I wonder if we've ever been in a place where we've been We've become so used to being where we are spiritually that we actually don't even have the desire 
to move from where we are and to step out and follow God when he calls us to do so. Today, we're looking at one such moment of decision in the life of Joshua and in the lives of the people of Israel. I want to remind you of what we looked at two weeks ago, how God had already called Joshua, commanded Joshua to follow him. We saw this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. It said, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, get up, he's saying. Get up from your fear. Get up from the fetal position. Get up and go over this Jordan River. Underline that phrase. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Go over this Jordan River, you and all these people, into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. That was two weeks ago. And then last Sunday, we looked at Joshua chapter 2 with Rahab and her faith. And today we come to Joshua chapter 3. And here's what it says in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim, and they came to Jordan. They came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, this assignment that God had called Joshua to was an overwhelming task. Joshua already knew because God had already told him that when they crossed over the Jordan River, they were going to face a whole lot of enemies that they would have to fight. This would not be a cakewalk into the land God had promised them. I hadn't planned on saying this, but can I just encourage some of you to remember that when you step out and do something for God, maybe he's called you on a little uh, local mission trip, or maybe you've stepped out to serve one of your neighbors in some way behind the scenes. Maybe you're trying to follow God in some way, and it seems like everything is falling apart. And what is the tendency? The tendency is to stop and question whether you're doing God's will or not. Because surely, if we were following God's will, things would not be this hard. That is false, my friends. It's false. Don't ever get distracted or dissuaded from the mission that God has called you to. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about the mission field. I'm talking about our day-to-day lives. Don't ever get distracted from doing what God has put in your heart to do just because you're running into roadblocks and enemies and obstacles. Joshua knew that enemies were ahead of them. He knew there were plenty of obstacles they would have to overcome. And on top of all that, as we saw two weeks ago, Joshua's mentor and leader, the man he loved and admired and respected and followed, was now dead. And all of this responsibility for leading all of these people had now fallen upon Joshua. This was not going to be easy at all. And in the face of such overwhelming circumstances, I'm sure that we could understand if the next morning Joshua had just pulled the covers up over his head and curled up and just decided to sleep in. You ever been there? You have something you have to face that day, that doctor's appointment you don't want to go to, that difficult conversation with someone that you don't want to have, the fear of that new job, knowing that you don't have enough money in the bank account to pay the bills. And what's the tendency? It's to pull the covers up 
figuratively or literally, and say, I don't want to face this. I think if anybody had the right to do that in this moment, it was Joshua. He was faced with an impossible, overwhelming, terrifying call from God. But I want you to see this. Verse 1 told us something very important. I don't know if you caught it or not. Joshua rose early in the morning. See, it's these little things in the Bible that we fly by and we miss completely. What's the best advice I've given you about studying the Bible? Slow down. Slow down. If you don't make it through it in a year, who cares? Slow down. Soak it in. This is an important statement. Joshua rose early in the morning. It's not the first time we've seen this in the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, we looked at this a long time ago in our study now through the Bible. God told Abraham to pack his things up, to get his son, and to take this three-day journey. There's the three days again. It comes up all the time in the Bible. To make this three-day journey to this mountain in the region of Moriah and to go up on that mountain and have a picnic. Was that it? Oh, no. To go up on the mountain and sacrifice his son. And the very next verse says these amazing words. Genesis 22, 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. You're kidding. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, as we know, in case there's anybody out there thinking that God is some sick, twisted uh, entity who would ever call their son to do this, we know it was never God's intention for Abraham to sacrifice his son. This was not some sick joke God was playing. We got to get past these uh, bizarre ways of thinking. We must understand, I, I can't, I don't have time to go into this, but back in those days, people sacrificed their children to their gods in order to earn favor from their God. They literally burned their children on altars Abraham had grown up surrounded by this. He was from Ur, one of those pagan cities in the world at that time. What God was doing was not cruel. It was one of those beautiful lessons he could have ever shown to Abraham. He's saying, hey, Abraham, I know you people are used to doing this, so get ready, get Isaac, go and sacrifice him, because that's how you can prove your love to me. And Abraham's like, whoa, okay. And off he went, and at the last minute, that's when God stepped in. And said, no, no, don't kill your son. I'm giving my son for you. God called Abram and Joshua to this overwhelming task. And they got up early to do what God had told them to do. Can the same thing be said about us? Or do we hear something from God's word tugging at our heart and we know that the Holy Spirit is calling us to obey in some area, but we delay and we delay and we delay. Joshua got up early in the morning to obey God and do what he had told him to do. And he and the people set out from where they were and they came to the edge of the Jordan River where it says that they camped for three days as they prepared to cross over. 
Verse 2 now says this of Joshua chapter 3. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. But there shall be a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits. That's about 1,000 yards, a little over 1,000 yards. Do not come near it so that you may know the way to go, for you have not passed this way before. The people were commanded not to rush out and begin to find their own way and begin to explore their own paths and say, I think I've got it over here, Joshua. This looks like the best way to go. They were commanded that once they saw the ark of God beginning to move in front of them, they were to keep their distance, but they were commanded to follow it, to follow behind it. You remember earlier in our studies of the tabernacle, we studied the Ark of the Covenant. It was a wooden box covered in gold with those two gold cherubim on top. And that doesn't mean much to us today, but we saw how that place, the the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, was the place where the presence of God dwelled on earth. And everywhere the Israelites traveled, the Ark of the Covenant was to go before them. Before them. This is a reminder for us that we must always allow God's presence to lead the way. We must never let ourselves stray to the right or to the left, as God already told Joshua back in chapter 1. And we must never try to run ahead of God. How many of us have messed up chapters of our lives because we've done that very thing. We know what God is telling us to do. We have his word and we read it or we hear a sermon or we hear something on Christian radio and the spirit of God pricks our hearts and clearly tells us to do something and we go, nah, I got a better plan. And we rush ahead of God, maybe when he's telling us to wait. No, God, I can't wait. I'm not going to wait another week for you. I'm not going to wait another month. I'm not going to wait another year for you to bring my spouse to me. I'm just going to go ahead and marry this person right now because I can't wait. Folks, it is a danger to rush ahead of God. God promises to lead us if we will follow him. Follow him. And why is it so important that we follow him? Well, the end of verse 4 shows us. So that you may know the way to go because you have never passed this way before. Listen, God is the only one who has already been into your future. Now, I love, always loved studying statistics and probability and forecasting, and I don't mean weather, but data. And so I have the kind of mind that can be very dangerous in this area as a follower of Christ, because I can study things, and I can plan ahead, and I can sometimes have a tendency to plan ahead of God, and it's a danger. It's a caution for me. So I've had to learn over the years to wait. I don't like waiting for anything. If we go to a restaurant, and there's a 25-minute wait, I'm like, let's go somewhere else. 
is I just don't like waiting. It's a horrible thing, I know. But I have this urge, this sort of built-in tendency sometimes to want to get ahead of God. But when I do that, what I'm saying is, hey, God, I got this. I know my future. But I don't. No matter how far I plan ahead, I don't know what's going to happen after the next word I say right now. We think we're in control. (laughs) We don't control anything. God is the only one who has already been into your future. He knows every twist and turn. He knows every blind spot. He knows every enemy. He knows every danger. You don't. Every moment of our future, even if it's the routine things that we do every day or all the time, we've done them a thousand times before, every moment of our future is a place we've never been before. Even when you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and it's a mindless routine, you're doing that for the first time in that moment. Who knows that your phone may ring and bring you news you never thought you'd get? Who knows that you would not clutch your chest and collapse to the floor? You think you're confident of the future? Better not be. You think we can do it by blind routine? Better not get too too sure. This is why we'd better be looking to God and following only where he leads. Verse 5, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, underline those two words, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. This is such a powerful phrase, and I'm actually not even going to spend time on this today because I want to focus on this in chapter 5 next week. Consecrate yourselves. I just wonder why it is today, and maybe it's just me, maybe it's because I'm an old guy and I'm out of touch with society and reality and everything that's hip. See, you don't even use that word anymore, so I am out of touch. But I just wonder why it is that God's presence and God's working seem to be taken so casually today, even by churches. It ought to disturb us. I wonder if we ourselves ever stop and consecrate ourselves before God before we rush out to do something for him. We'll cover that next Sunday. But I want us to notice that before these people could advance any further, they had to wait for three days right beside the Jordan River. And later on in this chapter, we're told something about the Jordan River we must not miss. Don't picture in your mind this lovely grass hill that runs down to this beautiful, trickling, quiet little sparkling stream. That's not it at all. The Bible tells us later on that the Jordan River was at flood stage when they were there. Verse 15, the end of verse 15, tells us that the river was overflowing its banks at that time of year as it did every year at that time. The snows upstream that massive mountain that got covered in snow every year, when those snows began to melt, they would rush down that mountain into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River would swell and overflow its banks, and it would become a terrifying sight to see. History tells us the Jordan River is very different today, by the way, than it was back then. They've dammed up certain parts of it. They've controlled it. They've changed it. History tells us 
that at flood stage there were places where the Jordan River could reach almost a mile wide. I'm sure you've seen videos of rivers that have broken their banks because of serious flooding. And what do you see? You see cars and sometimes entire houses being swept away by the power of the force of those currents. This is the picture. This is the picture we must get in our mind as these people are now on the banks of the Jordan River having been told to cross over. It's at flood stage. It's dangerous. No one in their right mind would dare set foot in those raging waters. And for three days, the people camped along the Jordan River when it was at flood stage. For three days, they stared at those rushing waters going by. They must have thought, there's no way we're getting across this. What is God asking us to do? This is crazy. For three days, things looked more and more bleak every day. For three days, their hope continued to drain away. For three days, the size of that obstacle in front of them grew bigger and bigger. I can only imagine that the size of that river grew in their sight to the point where it went from being just a body of water and it turned into a line of demarcation in the sand that said to them, you may have come this far, but you're not going any further. The people must have started thinking, what is God asking us to do? It'd be a lot safer just to stay where we are. At least we know what to expect here. At least things are somewhat safe here. At least we're in control here. Let's just stay put. Let's not forget this, what we've studied in weeks past. These people had spent the last 40 years in the wilderness, making their home in the wilderness, raising their children in the wilderness, getting used to living in that wilderness, walking in circles on the same well-worn tracks in that wilderness, a place where they were never meant to be. But they'd become used to it. And to them, that was their home. Months became years. Years became decades. And they had been in that wilderness for so long that they had adapted to the wilderness. They had become accustomed to the wilderness. They had made the wilderness their home. And the same thing happens to us in our walk with God. Instead of following God, we often choose to stay where we are instead. Why? Because we've been camped at the same place spiritually for so long. We've actually come to believe that it's the place where we were always meant to be. And please understand, I'm not talking about a geographical location. I'm talking about a place in your heart. You see, as followers of Christ, we all have a place in our heart where we've settled, and we all have a place in our heart where God wants us to be. And between the place where you are and the place where God wants you to be is a Jordan River. We all have a place in our life that we've been to, but we've never been beyond it. Do you understand? We all have a place spiritually where we've come to, and the next step looks so daunting 
It seems so far out of our reach, or maybe we just think it's not for us that we've decided to set up camp where we are, spiritually speaking, and we've come to this place, but we've never gone beyond it. And we're stuck there. We're trapped there in our own mind. So often the place we are now feels so familiar. And the place where God is calling us to feels so intimidating that we can't bring ourselves to even imagine stepping out from where we are, never mind actually stepping out. We just don't see ourselves ever being able to go there. But there comes a moment for all of us when we have to decide to leave behind the place where we've become content to stay in order to step out towards the place where God is calling us to go. And this means you have to let go of what's familiar. This means you have to let go of what's comfortable. You have to let go of what feels safe. And you have to step into the unknown in order to be where God wants you to be. Years ago, I was happily running my business. But there was a constant pull in my heart that God was calling me to follow him somewhere I'd never been before. He was calling me to leave my business and to do what I'm doing right here today. And I can tell you, that didn't make any sense to me. And it terrified me. And that became my Jordan River. And every time I approached it, it looked far too wide to cross. And so I would always turn around and go back to what was familiar. And the longer I delayed it, the more intimidating that step looked. Now make no mistake, it was a huge step. God was calling me to leave the only thing I knew. He was calling me to leave my livelihood as a husband and a father of two children. One had just been born at this time, holding a, an infant in my office many days, wrestling with this decision. God, you want me to put their lives on the line? You want me to risk their future? Come on, God. I mean, I'm doing okay here. I can provide for the kids really well. They can have a good future if you'll just work with me. If you'll just get on board with my plans for the future, God. The two of us, me and you, we can work this out. No matter where I went in my business, no matter how many miles I flew, no matter how many conferences I went to, no matter how many client meetings I went to, no matter how much money we made, there was always this place of misery in my spirit because I knew I was not where God wanted me to be. The step seemed too big. I could not envision how to get from here to there. It was just too wide a river. But you see, listen, that's how God works. God waited until the Jordan River was at flood stage so that when the Israelites got to the other side, everyone would know that it was God who led them across. What point would it be if God called us to man-sized tasks that we could accomplish in our sleep and take credit for? God has said, no one will take my glory. As the 
Christian singer Lecrae says so beautifully, we don't want to be like God, we want to be him. That's true for all of us in some place in our life. We want to call the shots. That's playing God. We want to do things in a way that brings us glory and recognition. We're robbing God. God's not going to call us to things that we can do and get credit for. If we're truly following him, he's going to call us to God-sized tasks that only he can get credit for. In fact, God told him to do something even crazier than just cross the river. Remember, way back in Exodus, the Israelites were fleeing Egypt, and all of Pharaoh's armies, their horses and chariots, were bearing down upon them. The Bible says they looked back and they saw the dust in the desert, and they could hear the thundering horse hooves. And yet, when they turned forward, they were standing at the banks of the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go. They were hemmed in. But at that time, God told Joshua, God told Moses to simply raise, I say simply, raise your staff and hold it out towards the sea. And when Moses did that, the waters parted and the people crossed on dry ground. Now, I'm going to tell you that was a big deal, but compared to what God is asking them to do now, that seems pretty easy. Verse 13, God said, when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, come to rest in the waters of the Jordan, that's when the waters of the Jordan will be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above will stand up in a heap. See, don't miss this. It wasn't until they stepped into the water and the soles of their feet touched the water. It wasn't until then that God stopped the waters of the Jordan River. You see, there are moments when we can talk about having faith. We can brag about having faith. But it's not until we shift our weight forward past the point of going back that we actually show that we have faith. Those priests carrying that ark, I can only imagine the conversation taking place with every step that they drew closer to that raging river. And they could hear the water rushing by. They could see massive logs being swept by. And with every step that they took with that ark on the poles on their shoulders, their hearts must have been beating out of their chest. And I just wonder if back at the camp, when they picked up the ark to begin walking towards the river, I wonder if there was an argument about who was in front today. Hey, Ralph, I had it last time, man. You're in front today. No, you weren't. You remember, I was, you know, surely something like that must have taken place. Like, I don't think anybody said, I call front. And God said, you walk towards that river, but you're not going to stand there this time and watch me do it. You're not going to hold out a staff this time and watch me do it. This time, you're going to have to lean your weight forward to the point where there's no turning back. And it's not until the bottom of your feet touch the water that you're going to see me move. That's crazy. That's crazy faith. So often we, we sit around waiting for the water to recede before we step out and obey God. 
We're waiting for the situation to clear up. We're waiting to have enough money in the bank account. We're waiting till the kids are grown. We're waiting till we have a better job. We're waiting till the timing is right. God says, no, step out now and obey what I'm asking you to do. There are times in life when we have to be willing to get our feet wet. The Christian who refuses to risk anything for God will never see the waters part. You remember that. You can live as safe a Christian life as you want to. But if we choose to never risk anything for God, we will never see his hand at work. Christian life will become this mind-numbing routine. Oh, it's time to go to church again. Oh my gosh, it's already been a week. I guess I got to do this. Oh, I guess I need to drop some money in the box because, you know, I guess that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, Boy, if you're living that Christian life, you better get on your knees before God and make that right or get out altogether. God says he would rather you be cold than to be lukewarm. That's a staggering statement. I read that for years and never caught that part. I was just like... uh, I always thought God said, hey, I don't want you to be lukewarm. I want you to be hot. That's only half of what he said. If you're not going to be hot, he said, I'd rather you be cold. In other words, I'd rather you just get out altogether and stop naming my name. Woo. Listen, it's easy to follow God when you don't have to risk anything. It's easy to follow God when you don't have any dangerous waters to cross. It's easy to follow God when you're healthy. It's easy to follow God when you have money. It's easy to follow God when the kids are all obeying. But God calls us to step out and follow him when our strength is failing, when the money isn't there, when life is filled with obstacles and turmoil and hardship and pain. As you survey the landscape of biblical history and you go back through all the books we've already studied, you'll see an unmistakable pattern. God's mission and purpose moved forward in every case when there was a person who was willing to step out and risk everything on the promises of God by crossing a raging Jordan River of some kind. Noah risked his reputation when he stepped out by faith to build an ark for the coming flood before one raindrop had ever fallen. Abraham risked his livelihood and the comforts and familiarities of home by stepping out and following God to a place that he wasn't even told about until later. Moses risked his very life when he stepped out by faith and looked into the eyes of the most powerful feared man on earth, Pharaoh, and said, let my people go. Joshua risked his credibility when he stepped out by faith and crossed the swollen river at flood stage. But what happened in every case as a result? What happened every time somebody took a risk? And I say it's a risk. It's a risk from our viewpoint. But from God's viewpoint, pardon me, I don't know how to put this in any other words. I don't mean this disrespectfully or irreverently, but it must be infuriating for him to show us again and again and again that he will not fail, that he is faithful, that he will do what he said he will do. And yet here we are going, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust him. 
What happened every time those people stepped out? God did amazing things as a result that could never have been done by the hand or the mind or the power of man. And what happened when Joshua and the priests stepped out? Verse 15 of Joshua chapter 3. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, and then it reminds us here, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Don't forget that. As soon as their feet dipped into the water, the water flowing downstream stood still and rose up in a heap very far away. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed on dry ground until the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan. These people experienced God's miraculous power for themselves because they were willing to step out and obey God even when it didn't make sense. And chapter 4 says they took big stones and they built a memorial that would serve as a lasting reminder for future generations so that when their children came to them and their children's children came to them and said, what do these stones mean? What does this memorial mean? You can tell them, God says. You can tell them. This is to remind us of how when our fathers and our grandfathers chose to obey God and step out and follow him into the raging Jordan River at the risk of their own lives, this is a reminder that God did exactly what he said he would do. God was faithful. He kept his promise, and he'll keep his promises for you too. But listen, looking at memorials from past generations should not be enough for us. We should never get to the place where we're we're content to only celebrate what God has done for people in the past. God is still calling his people today to advance his mission. And that happens every time a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, decide that they would rather risk drowning in the river with God than staying alive on the bank without him. God is still calling you and me to step out in some way or another, to go where he's calling us to go, to do what he's calling us to do. And I want to close by giving this, this very strong caution as we've heard these words today. I know where our minds are going. Too often we equate what we've heard today only with, you know, those big calls of God that someone sitting over there in the auditorium might get one day. You know, the call to a foreign mission field or the call to become a pastor. This message is great, Phil, but it's not for me, man. I'm just an accountant. I'm just a salesman. I'm just a hairdresser. I'm just a school teacher. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm nobody. God's God's not going to do anything like this with my life. You understand, Phil? Those kinds of calls to the foreign mission field or becoming a pastor are obviously important. But I wonder... Are we stepping out to obey God in the mundane moments of everyday life? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. I wonder, is there any area of your life that you already know 
how God's word is instructing you to think, to behave, to speak, to respond, but you're choosing to stay right where you are. You're holding on to bitterness because you feel that if you let it go, it's going to be like crossing the Jordan River at flood stage. There's a relationship you need to resolve, but by doing that, it's, it's so scary for you, so you just continue to stay where you are and put up with that horrible relationship. There's a stronghold of sin in your life, but you've been living in that wilderness for so long, you've convinced yourself you'll never be able to move beyond it. Listen, I say this in closing, not according to my word, but according to the word of God. You may have lived in the wilderness of fear or doubt or unbelief or complacency or failure for so long that you've come to believe that that's where you're destined to be for the rest of your life. But that's not where God's word is calling you to be. It never has been. We've traded the beauty and adventure, if I can use that word in the right way, of God's future for this, the phony safety of today. This morning, by the prompting of his Holy Spirit, God is calling some of you to step off the bank and into the river. It's time. It's time. It's time to break camp. It's time to put out the fire. It's time to pack up the tents. It's time to leave behind the familiar and the safe and the comfortable, and the known. God is inviting you to trust him in that area of your life where you've been filled with fear. He's reminding you that the spiritual wilderness you've lived in for so long is not the spiritual life he's called you to. So what are you going to do with the choice? Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. I want